to the best of the church's music for the season of Lent at LutheranPublicRadio.org. Sacred music for the season of Lent, LutheranPublicRadio.org. fortress is our God, speaking there about the old evil foe, a foe that Jesus himself has met on the battlefield of temptation there in the wilderness in the gospel reading for this coming Sunday. Jesus undergoes temptation by the devil himself, not the only temptations he faced, and yet we're told by scripture he was tempted as we are in every way, yet, and this is key, without sin. We see that on display in the first Sunday in Lent. Welcome back to Issues Etc. Coming to you live from the studios of Lutheran Public Radio in Collinsville, Illinois. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. We're going to look forward to Sunday morning, the first Sunday in Lent with Dr. Carl Fikencher, our regular guest for such things. He's professor of pastoral ministry and missions, teaching primarily in the area of preaching at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Dr. Fikencher, welcome back. Thank you so much, Todd. I appreciate it. With Ash Wednesday, we moved solidly into the season of Lent. Now, I will notice that the three-year lectionary that we're, that we're using here in our series with you begins Lent all three years exactly the same way with the temptation of Jesus. So how is the first Sunday of Lent different among those three years in that series? Well, that's actually a very good question, because you're right. Uh, Not only is the gospel lesson for each year the temptation of Christ, this year, year A, from Matthew, next year, year B, from Mark, the following year, year C, from Luke, but also the other propers are actually identical. The introit, the collect, the gradual, the verse, and the sermon, or the uh, hymn of the day, are all the very same for all three years. And that is to say, then, that we're beginning, in any case, the season of Lent with this confrontation between Satan and Christ that takes place of the temptation. That's a, a very appropriate place to start, no question. But the significant differences among the three years, A, B, and C, are in the other propers, that is, the Old Testament lesson and the Epistle lesson, primarily, as well as the Psalm, and how those are correlated to the different Gospel readings on the temptations of Christ. Yes, also the Gospel readings themselves, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are different. The the, the differences there are distinctive. We'll look at those. They're significant. Uh, But then, from those subtle distinctives among the three Gospel readings, we then see Old Testament lesson, Epistle, and Psalm 
prepared in ways that are very different. All of them, of course, are compatible. They are wonderfully all harmonious. Uh, they certainly all get at this, this event of the confrontation of Jesus against Satan and the temptation. But they definitely do bring different accents. And, and I'm, I'm really intrigued by year A, the way the Old Testament lesson working with Matthew's gospel and then the epistles significantly weighing in give a very significant message, a very special message that we won't hear next year or the following year. And, and by the way, it, it's not a bad idea for listeners who are regular to, to listen back to what we did last year in year C, based on the Gospel from Luke, and the previous year, year B, on the Gospel of Mark. They, they might even be intrigued to notice that last year we looked at the Ash Wednesday propers as well. And so someone who wants to pick up on, on what happens the very first day of Lent, Ash Wednesday, can, can look back at the archives and see what we, what we talked about last year as that connected. But this year, year A, with Matthew's Gospel, gives a, a really a very, very interesting connection that has huge application for our lives. And that's what I'll be excited to focus on this time. The intro for this first Sunday in Lent is um, from the psalm, Psalm 91, but it is a psalm that is composed where God speaks through most of it. That's right, exactly. God speaks, and that's interesting because the, the one highlight that I'll point out this time is that uh, the devil actually uh, chooses to quote the Lord. The intro it is Psalm 91, verses 9 through 13, and the antiphon, verses 15 through 16. And as I read it, listen and see if you recognize the part that the devil will actually quote. The psalm, when he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot, and then the Gloria Patri. I, I, I bet uh, many of our hearers recognize those verses in the middle. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. That is the, the very Bible passage which Satan quotes in seeking to encourage Jesus to jump from the pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem in what in Matthew's gospel is recorded as the second of the three major temptations. Uh, so it really is, of course, a wonderful assurance of God's care that he will answer when we call to him, and no time do we need God's help more than when we are facing the temptations of Satan. Uh, it, it, uh, it, it yet can be misquoted, misused, even by the devil himself. So remember that as we look through the propers. The collect for the day is kind of tying together Jesus' time in the wilderness, the Old Testament people's time in the wilderness, and ours. And I think, Todd, that's the element that I, that I believe comes out most significantly in year A. This is the same collect for year A, B, and C, but the point you just made is what I think will connect most prominently to our connection in year A between the Old Testament lesson and the Gospel. Here's the collect. Oh, Lord God, you led your ancient people through the wilderness and brought them to the Promised Land. Guide the people of your church that following our Savior, we may walk through the wilderness of this world toward the glory of the world to come. 
through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Of course, we know that Jesus' temptation takes place in the wilderness. There is clearly a connection there to Israel's wandering in the wilderness. This year, year A, we're going to see how that really uh, parallels beautifully what happens in the Old Testament lesson and the Gospel. What we really have here is a parallel in history. Remember that element, the parallel in history here between Old Testament Israel and our world today. We're going to see a parallel in history also between the Old Testament lesson and the Gospel reading, which I think is the most significant element of the year A propers. So after the Collect, we have uh, the gradual, which is from the book of Hebrews. I think it's actually a really good Lenten verse, isn't it? It is indeed, and of course, this is why we we don't want to overlook it this first Sunday of Lent. This will be the gradual all the way through the season of Lent, up through Palm Sunday, till we get to Holy Week. Uh, So it it is intended to express the theme for the entire season. It is, again, the same, year A, B, and C, but it really is, in effect, the quintessential uh, Lenten verse because it directs us to this journey that is always a part of our our Lenten celebration. O come, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. During the season of Lent, We're following Jesus to the cross, fixing our eyes on Jesus, realizing that he is the one who has given us something to cling to. Everything we do during the season of Lent really is about observing what Jesus did for us, enduring the cross, despising its shame, ultimately to the glory that God gave him in the enthronement at the resurrection. What is the the verse doing there? That Ephesians passage about yeah. uh, resisting the wiles of the devil and the, or the schemes of the devil with the armor of God. Yeah, Ephesians six verse eleven is the verse again for all three years A, B, and C. And notice here that it clearly expresses this confrontation we've been talking about. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. The armor of God, St. Paul elaborates in Ephesians chapter 6. He talks about each of the, the pieces of the armor. And actually, as we look at year A, B, and C for the first Sunday of Lent, we really can pick up different accents because what Jesus does for us in turning aside the devil's temptation in the gospel lesson for each year is obviously the uh, the victory that Christ has over the devil against the schemes of the devil. We, we see that in the temptation, obviously. But the way Christ does it is, uh, is well worth noting as a particular uh, aspect of the armor. Uh, what we'll talk about in our Old Testament lesson and Gospel reading, and then likewise with the epistle this time, picks up a particular aspect of that. So, Todd, what we've got then is a, uh, an intro, a collect, a gradual, and a verse which is identical in each of the three years. So that, that lays the foundation. Clearly, we've got before us this confrontation between uh, the devil and Christ that we see in the temptations. We, we see uh, the, the Word of God, which Jesus uses to turn aside the devil, which the devil tries to use against Christ. Uh, we certainly fix our eyes on Jesus as the one we will follow throughout the season of Lent, and definitely when we are tempted. And then from the collect, we have that 
a repetition, that uh, revisiting of history. All of these are foundational to what will happen whichever year we look at for the first Sunday of Lent, the temptation of Christ. But from here now, we'll look at the particulars that are different during this year A. Dr. Carl Fikensher is our guest. We're looking forward to Sunday morning, according to the three-year lectionary, the first Sunday in Lent. We will get to the Old Testament reading, the fall account in Genesis 3 after this. What makes a church unique? Perhaps we should ask what makes a church faithful. Calvary Lutheran Church of Elgin, Illinois, continually learns Christ's doctrine, simply explained in the small catechism. This doctrine teaches us Christ crucified, who even today comes and serves his baptized children in word and sacrament to forgive, strengthen, and teach us for daily life. This, Christ's own work among us, makes and keeps Calvary Lutheran Church faithful. Visit us at clce.org. The 500th anniversary of the Reformation approaches. A good time to ask, who are we as confessional Lutherans? What's our heritage? The Confessional Lutherans for Christ's Commission has produced the Layman's Guide to Theological History. Go to the clcc.org and see which of these presentations and books would be most helpful to you and your fellow parishioners. And consider becoming a member with us as the CLCC seeks to help more people know what it means to be a confessional Lutheran. The clcc.org. Christological, creedal, confessional. You're listening to Issues Etc. Memoria Press invites all Issues Etc. listeners to explore our Simply Classical curriculum, a set of full-year academic curriculum packages for children with learning challenges. Our classical writing program and our Christian studies are now based on your favorite CPH Bible storybooks. To learn more, visit classicalspecialneeds.com and use promo code LPR to save on your initial purchase. That's classicalspecialneeds.com. This is a message for members of Thrivent Financial for Lutherans. Thrivent Financial has a charitable grant program called Thrivent Choice. Thrivent Choice allows you to designate charitable outreach funds to Lutheran Public Radio. For more information, look for the Thrivent logo under the Donate page of our website, issuesetc.org. Or ask your Thrivent representative about Thrivent Choice. Help support the worldwide outreach of Issues Etc. with Thrivent Choice. Second stanza of the hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, the hymn of the day for this coming Sunday, the first Sunday in Lent, as we look forward to Sunday morning, according to the three-year lectionary with Dr. Carl Fikentcher. I'm Todd Wilkin. This is Issues Etc. Dr. Fikentcher, let's go to the Old Testament reading, which is the fall account, kind of the beginning of the entire problem. 
Yeah, that's exactly it. The fact of the matter is Genesis 3, verses 1 through 21, the account of the fall into sin, is the problem, uh, with a capital T, capital P. It, it's, it's the problem that will now be the basis essentially for everything that happens to the remainder of Scripture, from, from Genesis 3 to the end of Revelation, and the basis for every Christian sermon. Every Christian sermon is predicated on the idea that we have this, this ultimate need, which came when we were separated from God by Adam and Eve's sin. Uh, this is such a significant text. It really could be mentioned, as I said, in every sermon. It is actually cited again, a portion of it, verses 8 through 15, next year, year B, in proper five, during the Pentecost season. But this, the first Sunday of Lent, is the time when it becomes most in focus. And the pairing with Matthew's gospel account, Matthew 4, 1 through 11, of the temptation of Christ, is very significant, very intentional. Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 21, I'll read through it, and then we have a lot of comments to make here. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. 
In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. We know the story, it's familiar, and there are so many, many aspects here that are tremendously significant. In, in, in quick summary, of course, what happens is that the serpent tempts Eve to doubt that God has really been not only truthful to them, but also giving them the best deal. Satan suggests that maybe there's something out there that God is holding back. And Eve wants it. She gives in to the temptation. She gives to her husband. He eats. Then God comes, and now a visit with the Lord is no longer the joy it once was. They hide themselves. They realize they're naked, which had never been a problem before. God speaks to them. Adam, first of all, tries to pass the buck to Eve. Eve tries to pass the buck to the serpent. God speaks to the serpent, then to Eve and Adam. And, of course, the consequences have been affecting us ever since. Pain in childbirth for the woman, conflict between husband and wife. Uh, For Adam, the ground no longer produces freely and successfully as it always had, but now even farming, which was a delight, is tough. Uh, There will always be sweat. There will always be suffering. And, of course, we know all about this. Ultimately, there is also death. Death comes into the world as soon as sin enters the world. It's a, it's a, it's a terrible, terrible picture uh, from such a beautiful thing that we saw in the Garden of Eden before this moment where everything worked, where there was beautiful harmony and love between husband and wife and between God and mankind. Now everything, everything goes awry. It could not be a, a, a deeper, deeper tragedy. Now, to go back to a few more details, including those that especially pair with our gospel reading this time. Look back at the way the devil does his tempting. He comes to Eve and speaks to her in a way that apparently didn't, didn't trouble her at the time. It wasn't shocking that the serpent, who, uh, is, which is the form that uh, Satan takes on, is speaking, whether that's just naivete of, of uh, Eve at the time or, uh, or if things were so radically different back then that this was in the order of things, we don't know. But the serpent speaks to Eve, and the challenge is to uh, question what God has done. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? From what God had given, something so generous, so open, so freely, you may eat of any of the trees of the garden, except this one, because that's your opportunity to worship me, to, to, to show your reverence for me, for the Lord God. Now, Satan makes it negative. You shall not eat of any tree in the garden. Do notice that the first aspect of this one temptation in the Old Testament reading specifically is about eating. Shall you not eat of any tree? Eve answers, uh, we shall eat of any of the trees of garden except the one, but we're not supposed to touch it or eat from it. God, by the way, had not said they could not touch it. That may have been added in, in the Eve's own projections, or uh, perhaps it's something we aren't given as an account. But uh, it already is, is a departure from what God had said. Then the devil comes back again. The serpent said to the woman, 
you will not surely die. Notice that, the second aspect of the temptation. Eating first, and now denying God's warning, they will die. They will not surely die. Death is, is, is denied. But instead, God knows that if you eat of it, you will be like God. That's the third aspect of the temptation, being like God. Satan actually uses something which is truthful here in a very perverse way. Uh, your eyes will be open. You will know good and evil. That was true. But how horribly the devil perverts this, because God knew that for Adam and Eve to know only good was delightful in every way. It's true. If they ate of this tree, they would know good and evil. But God knew that knowing evil would be no joy whatsoever. We know evil today, and that does not brighten our day. But Satan offers it as, as, as something to be desired. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And so sure enough, the woman gives in to the temptation. She takes of the, the tree, she eats. She gives to her husband, and he eats. Interestingly, Adam was nearby. We, we realize that. But Adam should have been stepping up to the plate and defending his wife. No, no, Eve, don't, don't, don't even listen to this temptation. We know that God has given us the best. It, it almost seems as if, uh, as if Adam is standing nearby wondering what might happen to Eve when she eats and doesn't keel over immediately. Then he also eats. Now they suddenly realize they're naked. Being naked had never been a problem before. Nothing wrong with that. But now they look at themselves and somehow see something lacking, a, a need to cover themselves. But especially do they feel a need to cover themselves, in fact, to hide when God comes to visit with them, walking in the garden in the cool of the day. In the past, God and mankind had such a beautiful and perfect relationship that any interaction would have been delightful. Our catechism says that Adam and Eve knew God's will, and they were happy knowing it, always what God had to say to them, what God had for them was always a joy. Now, God coming to them is a terror, because they realize what they have done. They are guilty before the Lord. Very interesting in verse 9, the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? God, of course, knew that Adam and Eve had both sinned. In fact, God knew very well that Eve had taken of the, of the fruit first. But God does hold Adam, the man, responsible. And that's going to show up significantly in our epistle lesson, that sin, for whatever reason in God's design, is passed down specifically through Adam, even though uh, birth comes from the woman, from, from Eve. And of course, then God confronts Adam, holds him responsible. Why were you afraid? Well, we, we, I, I realized I was naked, uh, so I hid myself. What have you done? Have you eaten of the tree? Adam tries to blame Eve, and in fact, he even blames God in the process. The woman whom you gave to be with me, Eve did it, but you're the one who gave me the woman in the first place, God, so you are also responsible for this. It's not really my fault, it's hers and, and even yours. That, of course, won't hold water. But God turns then to the woman and confronts her, what is this that you have done? She tries to blame the serpent, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And then, verse 14 and 15, God turns to the serpent. He first of all curses the serpent, and then he says, I will put enmity between you, serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. That's Genesis 
And if Genesis chapter 3, the fall, is the precedent that creates need, the problem, for every situation that has arisen since, the basis for every Christian sermon that has been necessary since, well, here, verse 15, spoken by the Lord God to the serpent, the devil, is the basis for hope, the basis for salvation in every one of those Christian sermons, and the basis for our deliverance from every aspect of the problem. It's known as the first gospel. It's very familiar to us, but I'm not sure every aspect of that verse is as familiar as would be helpful. We know very well that this is a reference to the cross. The seed of the woman, her offspring, shall bruise Satan, and Satan will bruise him. Uh, The seed of the woman will bruise his head, and the serpent, the devil, will bruise his heel. This is the first reference to the cross. On the cross, Jesus is bruised. It's pictured here as his heel. We realize that it is nothing less than his life. The Son of God, the seed of the woman, the one who would come as a great, 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 great grand descendant of Adam and Eve, will be nothing less than God's own Son, and he would suffer at the hands of the devil even death on the cross. But the result is that he would crush the head of the devil. When Jesus dies on the cross and suffers that terrible bruising, so also he would bruise the head of the serpent. Now, that's the part of the verse that I think we recognize and understand. The first part of the verse is the part I'm not sure we fully understand. The last part of the verse that we do understand is a reference to what has happened here, the cross, Jesus' death on the cross. The first part of the verse, which I'm not sure we do fully appreciate, gives the significance of the cross. And here it is again. The Lord says to the serpent, remember, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Enmity means separation. And we know this is true. We know that we are enemies of the devil, separated from the devil, because of this word that the Lord speaks to the devil. But while we speak of enmity as a negative thing, a separation from the devil, what really lies behind that is the most magnificent positive thing. When Adam and Eve were created, they were at one with the Lord. That's why a previous interaction with God would always have been a wonderful thing. As soon as Adam and Eve sin, they're separated from God by that sin. They're terrified. They hide from God, which really amounts to them being together at one with God's enemy, the devil. So now, in Genesis 3.15a, the first part of the verse, when God says to the devil that he will put enmity between the devil and Eve's offspring, Christ, and all of the offspring, us as well, He's saying that we will be separated from the devil, which ultimately means being reconciled to God. And that is exactly what the last part of the verse, Jesus' death on the cross, accomplishes. Jesus' death on the cross, his being bruised by the devil but crushing the head of the serpent, of the devil, has taken away the sin that separated us from God. When our sin, which separated us from God, 
that is, the event of the cross, has been removed, then we are back together with God. Enmity between us and the devil is reconciliation between us and God. And when we are back together with God, reconciled to God, the relationship that Adam and Eve enjoyed with God, walking with him in the cool of the day in the garden before sin has been restored, then every truly good thing that God desires to give us is ours. It's interesting, actually, at the end of the Old Testament reading, after we've talked about the curses that come and pain and childbirth and the ground being cursed and so on, that it finishes this way. The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. That sounds insignificant, but the fact of the matter is, this is the first notable example of God providing the blessings that come when God and man are reconciled. If we were still separated from God by our sin, that is, at one with the devil, we would get no good thing from God, not even garments of skin to clothe us in a world that now will be affected even meteorologically, bad weather that needs warmth and so on. We would get none of those things from God. But the fact that God gives Adam and Eve something as simple as clothing to wear is the first notable example of how God is now providing for all of our needs because the seed of the woman going to the cross, reconciling us to God, will enable us to receive all of God's good things. So much going on in Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 21, the disaster that, that is the precipitating event for every problem since creates the need for every Christian sermon since, but already there hidden almost in verse 15 is also the answer to that need. God and man reconciled back together, enmity with Satan, reconciliation to God because of the crushing and bruising. And that then is the basis for us receiving every good thing that God has given us every day since and for all eternity in heaven. Just one more wrap-up point, Todd. Let me remind again of those three aspects of the temptation that I picked up uh, in the first few verses. It begins with the idea of eating. It continues with Satan's promise that we will not die. And finally, that third, that we will be like God. We'll see how, how very closely those follow what happens in our gospel reading a bit. Dr. Carl Fikancher is our guest professor of pastoral ministry and missions at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. We're looking forward to Sunday morning, according to three-year lectionary. Psalm 32 is next. Many Lutheran pastors outside of the U.S. receive little or no seminary education. Luther Academy provides theological triage through conferences, books, and journals. Help support Luther Academy by making a tax-deductible donation at lutheracademy.com or call 260-452-2211. Serving Lutheran pastors to the ends of the earth. Luther Academy, 260-452-2211 or lutheracademy.com.
When a Christian woman is critical of her own flesh, she holds her creator in contempt. Rose Adel from her new book, Ladylike Living Biblically. Our Heavenly Father knit us together in the womb. He did not do a bad job. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. Psalm 139, 14. That goes for everyone, including the one who thinks she's the ugliest of them all. You can purchase and download Concordia Publishing House's new audiobook, Ladylike Living Biblically, at Amazon, Audible, and iTunes. Your daily Lutheran Bible class. You're listening to Issues Etc. Come listen to Drs. Alvin Schmidt and Roland Elke at the third annual Concordia Apologetics Conference, Cultures in Collision, Faith and a Fractured World, this March 3rd and 4th at Concordia University, Wisconsin. You can register online at www.cuw.edu forward slash apologetics or call 262-243-4343. That's the Concordia Apologetics Conference, March 3rd and 4th at Concordia University, Wisconsin. Celebrate the 500th anniversary of the Reformation with the new Martin Luther plush figure. It features the 16th century reformer holding the Bible and Luther's morning and evening prayers. Go to ReformationGear.com, use the coupon code ISSUESETC, and 20% of your purchase will help support the worldwide outreach of Issues Etc. ReformationGear.com the new Martin Luther plush figure, ReformationGear.com, and enter the coupon code ISSUESETC. Stanza three of A Mighty Fortress is Our God. We're looking forward to Sunday morning, according to the three-year lectionary with Dr. Carl Fakenter of Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. I'm Todd Wilkin. This is Issues Etc. We come to Psalm 32, at least the first seven verses of this famous psalm, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. It's a great psalm. For time's sake, I'll only touch on it. It's a psalm of David, which, along with Psalm 51, is an expression of the relief that David feels after his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah, and then the absolution that he received from Nathan, realizing that his sins have been forgiven. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Um, What the psalm is really all about, Psalm 32, is expressing the fact that, yes, we are guilty of sin, as Adam and Eve and their sin brought sin into the world, which has infected every single one of us since, but we are blessed when God delivers us from those sins. Verse 5, I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. There's no hope of denying our sinfulness. From the moment Adam and Eve sinned, all of their offspring, all of their descendants have been infected by sin. No point in denying it. Let's confess it. And the result 
you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Finally, verse 7, you are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. When Satan assaults us, this is our need, a hiding place. The, the one who will deliver us from Satan and ultimately forgive, not count against us, the iniquity of our giving in to those temptations. Much more to say about Psalm 32, but perhaps time doesn't permit us to, to, to go further. The epistle reading is uh, custom-made, really, for the Old Testament reading and eventually even that gospel reading. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Todd, this is a great example of what I said when, when I noted from the beginning. All three years, talk about the temptation of Christ, but the way the Old Testament lesson and epistle lessons are paired with the particular gospel reading is really key. We saw this year, year A, the specific account of the fall into sin, Adam and Eve falling into sin, which has therefore affected mankind ever since. We noted that it was actually Adam, rather than Eve, that God held particularly responsible. Both, both, both carried their guilt. Eve was, would suffer as well, no question about that, man and woman both. But God actually calls Adam to account. And that shows up here in Romans 5, verses 12 through 19. St. Paul writes, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin was indeed in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift of God by the grace of that one man abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through the one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. The connections here are quite clear, aren't they? Through one man, that is Adam, sin came into the world, and yes, death with sin. As a result also, all sinned. All of us have inherited Adam and Eve's sin. We are all guilty of sin. We can't simply blame Adam and Eve. They brought into the world, but we have been fully and uh, willingly accomplices in the whole process. That's what caused death to reign from the time of Adam and Eve even to our day and until Christ returns. We're going to die, and it's because of this sin. But through one man, Jesus Christ, and his perfect obedience, the many, and that is all people, will be made righteous. This is the, the flip side. This is where Christ comes in and now undoes all the things that Adam and Eve brought into the world by their sin. Death reigned through Adam, but life through the one man, Jesus Christ. 
condemnation for all men through one man's trespass, life, justification for all men through the obedience of Christ. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. What we see, Todd, and what we'll see so beautifully in the Gospel reading now, is that what Adam did, Christ has undone. Dr. Carl Fikentcher is our guest. We'll get to that Gospel reading, The Temptation of Jesus, and Matthew's account of it right after this. Listen to the best of the church's music for the season of Lent at LutheranPublicRadio.org. Sacred music for the season of Lent, LutheranPublicRadio.org. The Reformation's relevancy, natural law, news discernment, modern-day apostles and prophets, depression, catechizing our children— you can meet and hear Issues Etc. regular guests discussing these topics at the Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference, June 9th and 10th in Collinsville, Illinois. Find out more at issuesetc.org. Registration is $120. The Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference, June 9th and 10th in Collinsville, Illinois. Putting Christ back into Christian radio, you're listening to Issues Etc. Your pastor has been called to shepherd you as a member of Christ's flock. Doxology offers an innovative program of advanced study retreats where your pastor can be refreshed, renewed, and refocused. Find out more at doxology.us. Many pastors report that doxology has been one of the most valuable learning experiences since seminary. Doxology, the Lutheran Center for Spiritual Care and Counsel. Doxology.us doxology.us There are nearly 20 million college students in the United States. 40% will stop going to church during college. 50% will never return. The Lutheran Church Missouri Synod is seeking to meet this challenge through LCMSU. Why? Because 100% of college students matter to God and to His church. College is tough. You need Jesus. We'll help. LCMSU Check us out at lcms.org slash lcmsu. final stanza of the hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. 
sung by the Concordia Seminary Chorus. We are looking forward to Sunday morning, according to the three-year lectionary. I'm Todd Wilkin. This is Issues Etc. Dr. Carl Fakentry is our guest, professor of pastoral ministry and missions, teaching primarily in the area of preaching at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Dr. Fakentry, we come to the Gospel reading, Matthew's account of the temptation, but we've already laid quite a foundation for this, haven't we? Yes, indeed. And we'll see how the parallels are so significant. Matthew 4, 1 through 11. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. The significance of this, of course, is that Christ now has turned aside the devil's temptation. All those things the devil tried to do to, to derail Christ's salvific work have failed. The devil knew that Christ was the one, the only one, as God's own son, who could undo the tragedy that Eve and Adam had brought into the world. So that if the devil could get Jesus to sin in just one tiny way, there could be no Savior. Now, no one would be able to undo that damage, and Satan ultimately would be the winner. It's interesting that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. That is to say that Jesus goes to do this intentionally. This is God's design. The Spirit leads him. Jesus knows this is coming, uh, to be tempted for 40 days and 40 nights of fasting first. The first temptation, you'll notice, relates back to Genesis 3, verse 1. It's about food, isn't it? When the devil came and tempted Eve to consider eating, so now Jesus is hungry, and the devil brings the very same kind of temptation against Jesus. And as with the Old Testament lesson as well, the temptation, of course, is to doubt God. If you are the Son of God, God had just told Jesus in Matthew chapter 3 at his baptism, just moments before, 40 days before, quite literally, uh, that he was the beloved Son. Now the devil tempts Jesus to doubt that word. If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. But Jesus quotes back, no, I don't need to do this myself, because every word from the mouth of God is trustworthy. He will provide. The second temptation from the pinnacle of the temple in the holy city, again, doubt God's promises. If you are the Son of God, bring that into question. Doubt that. But you can prove it by throwing yourself down from here. And now here's where the devil quotes from Psalm 91. He will command his angels concerning you on their hands who will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Notice the parallel here with the second temptation to Genesis 3, verse 4, 
where the devil said to Eve, you will not die. Here the devil says to Jesus, throw yourself down, you'll be protected, you won't die. Finally, the third temptation, the devil tempts Jesus to bow down with one little act of worship so that all the kingdoms of the world and their glory could be his. This, of course, echoes Genesis 3, verse 5. You will be like God. The glory of God will be yours. But again, in the first, second, and third temptations, Jesus answers with God's word and turns aside those temptations of the devil. He doesn't give in to those temptations. And this is the very way that Jesus undoes what Adam and Eve brought into the world. You know, Todd, we we often nowadays talk about revisionist history, about people trying to rewrite history in ways that are not really accurate, but project today's viewpoint on political correctness and so on. In this particular case, what Jesus does when he actively obeys God, we call it his active obedience, does not give in to the temptations of the devil, actually doesn't just rewrite history, but rewrites it truthfully. Which brings me to my theme for this first Sunday in Lent, according to the year A propers. My theme is this. By Jesus obeying where we had given in to Satan's temptation, Jesus rewrote our history. By Jesus obeying where we had given in to Satan's temptation, Jesus rewrote our history. That is to say that Jesus has actually done what was demanded of Adam and Eve, and they failed to do. Adam and Eve wrote a terrible history for the world, a history of tragedy, of sin, of death. But Jesus, by his active obedience, turning aside the devil's temptations, always obeying God rather than giving in, has actually created a new history for us. Because God looks at everyone who believes in Jesus and says, from my perspective, and God's perspective is always a true one, from my perspective, you did not give in to the devil and his temptations. You did not eat of the tree. You have not been unfaithful to me. You have not broken the second, third, fifth, ninth, tenth, fourth commandment, or any of the commandments. You, human beings who believe in Christ Jesus, have Christ's own perfect obedience, the obedience that we see in Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, following in each point Satan's first wave of temptation to Eve, in Jesus' first temptation, Satan's second step of tempting Eve, which we see in Jesus' second temptation, the third step in the process of Satan tempting Eve, which we see in Jesus' third temptation. And as Jesus turned aside each temptation, so God says, that now is our history. Jesus, by his obedience, has actually rewritten our own history. Dr. Carl Fikancher is Professor of Pastoral Ministry and Missions, teaching primarily in the area of preaching at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Dr. Fikancher, it's always a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much, Todd. Tomorrow on Issues Etc., we'll find out why Peter Burfine, Pastor Peter Burfine, thinks you should give up media for Lent. We will visit with Dr. Al Schmidt, author of the Issues Etc., Book of the Month, Hallmarks of Lutheran Identity, 
And we'll discuss radical Lutheranism with Pastor Brian Ketchelmeyer. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for listening. Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc. Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is vital for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Our mailing address, Issues Etc., P.O. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also donate at our website, issuesetc.org. Issues Etc. is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio. At Concordia University, Irvine, you can pursue advanced theological study for academic, professional, or personal development. Concordia's Master of Arts in Theology program is grounded in the truth of Scripture and insights from the Lutheran Confessions. Courses are taught online and at intensive on-campus sessions in the summer. Apologetics, Christian education leadership, and Reformation studies are just a few of the emphases offered. For more information, visit cui.edu slash theology. Do you want a church with a rockin' band and a sermon series to help you live a better life? It's not here. Bethany Evangelical Lutheran Church in Fairview Heights offers authentic, historic Christianity to a world awash in fads and entertainment and offers forgiveness of sins to people overwhelmed with guilt and shame. Join us Sundays at 9.30 on Old Collinsville Road in Fairview Heights, Illinois, to receive the life-giving gifts of God with us. Find out more online at BethanyLCMS.org.